0: Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians, if you would, this morning, the book of Philippians. Continue our series entitled Magnify Jesus. If you have missed any of the messages so far in this series, you can always get caught up at our website, Uh Click on the button that says podcast and listen to previous messages. Or you can download the Huikala app. Uh, it has a, a um, list of all the messages in this series. Uh, we just kicked off last week our verse-by-verse study uh, in Magnify Jesus also, if you uh, want to download a copy of the notes to your mobile device, you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, through the Who We Call app, click on the button that says podcast, click on the message for today. Uh, there's an option for fill-in notes, which will open up a browser. You can type your notes in on your device, or you can download a PDF to your device, whatever works for you. Just take some really good notes because uh, it's, uh, we need to remember the things that we've heard from God's Word and the things that God's spoken to us uh, through His Word. Philippians chapter 1 is where we find ourselves today. Just by way of review, last week we took a look at the uh, book of Philippians. was written to the church at Philippi by the Apostle Paul. Uh, One of nine of his uh, letters that he wrote to churches uh, is the book of Philippians. Uh, The book of Philippians was a church that was started by Paul uh, when he traveled through uh, the uh, city of Philippi. It was his first European city that he'd ever gone to and preached the gospel, and he preached, and people got saved there. He began a church and uh, then moved on in his missionary journeys and started other churches. And about 10 years after the church was started, he wrote a letter to them from prison. And as Paul writes, from a Roman prison, and he shares with them uh, to have joy and to continue to rejoice in the Lord and that he has joy, and they should too, uh, because joy is a part of our life despite our circumstances. And so he challenges them. Now, again, when we talk about a Roman prison, we're not talking about a prison like you and I would think of, like uh, Halava or Triple C, where you have a cell block. It was more of a house arrest and the fact that he would be confined to living quarters with a Roman guard under Roman supervision 24-7, not allowed to leave in that aspect. And so uh, he was there not as punishment, but basically awaiting trial. And there's a trial where he would eventually be found guilty of preaching the gospel and eventually be put to death for his faith, uh, but here we find him writing to uh, what we sometimes refer to as one of the prison epistles, a letter that was written from prison. Philippians chapter one, we're going to start in verse number one and read through verse number five this morning. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi. With the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. As Paul writes, we sometimes refer to the letter to the church at Philippi as Paul's letter of joy. As he wrote to other churches, he wrote to correct false doctrine. Uh, He wrote to correct problems in the church. First and second Corinthians, he dealt with a lot of problems in the church. Second Corinthians, he dealt with a lot of false doctrine in the church. Uh, the letter to the church as at Galatia, not one particular church, but probably a gathering of five or more churches there uh, that he wrote to was to combat the false doctrine of uh, Judaism and the fact that you had to to follow Jesus, you still had to keep the Old Testament Levitical law. And he says, that's not the case at all. Jesus Christ is enough and uh, combats some false doctrine there. Others are more comforting in nature in the fact that he writes to the church at Thessalonica who had experienced death of some of the members of their church. He says, hey, let's not sorrow as others who have no hope but we're different as Christians, and we know that we'll see them again one day and give some encouragement there. But the letter that he writes to the church at Philippi, there's no sharp rebuke that's found there. There's no correction of false teaching. Uh, there's no calling out people for sinful or carnal behavior. There's just a lot of gratitude, a lot of joy, and a lot of love that he shares with these people. And so uh, the letter uh, to the church of Philippi is really a letter of joy. If you haven't ever had the opportunity to read the, the book of Philippians, read it this week. Four chapters only, really easy read if you're a slow reader like me you could probably make it through in about 20 minutes or so uh, but you'll be helped by the book of philippians i guarantee you And we're going to walk through it over the next several weeks just taking one verse at a time and uh, again don't try to pace with this like oh it's one verse so it's going to be uh this message is going to be really short or really long that has nothing to do with the length of the message uh, what you'll actually find is uh, next week we're going to go through verse number six uh, verse number six uh, fairly short verse It's gonna take us three weeks to unpack it all. It's big. Uh, And so uh, just uh, hang in, strap in for the long haul. We'll be here in the Book of Friends for a while on Sunday mornings, and it'll be a help to you. Now, again, last week, we took a look at how joy is uh, happiness based on spiritual realities. Happiness comes and goes. Uh, Happiness is based on our circumstances, but joy is based on spiritual realities. I can have hope knowing that uh, I am a child of God. I can have hope knowing that God's word is written to me for my life. We talked about in the, the small group that I was a part of this past week on a Wednesday night. If you're not part of a small group, you should totally join one this week. Everybody should be in a small group where we uh, gather together each week. We pray for each other. We study the Bible. And you get to know other people in our church and other people get to know you. You need to be a part of that, okay? We were talking this past week and I asked the question to one of our men. And I said, is it possible to be sad and have joy at the same time? He sat there for a minute and he said, absolutely. I said, why is that? Because sadness is based on our circumstances, but joy is based on Jesus and God's word. I said, give me an example of that. He said, well, a family member who's a Christian passes away, there's a sadness there, but we have joy knowing that we'll see him again in heaven one day. Man, stellar, stellar answer. Now, the question is, can you have happiness and sadness at the same time? You can because we're very good at compartmentalizing our emotions and the fact that I can be happy about a situation that happened at home, very uh, upset about a situation that happened with my kids' school and very sad about a situation that happened at work and we compartmentalize, but here's what joy is. Joy is an overarching emotion that touches every area of my life. Hey, things are good at home, I can have joy because joy is based on who Jesus is. Things are kind of a little bit dicey at work, but I can have joy because God's in charge of all the things that are happening at work. My kid's school and things that are going on there. I can continue to have joy because I know that God is sovereign and he's faithful and he's always good to his word. So joy is so powerful because it's overarching. As Paul writes this letter of joy to the Philippians, he opens up really with heartfelt gratitude for who they are and for what they've done. And we as uh, Americans especially become incredibly thankful around the month of November, don't we? At the middle of November, we begin talking about thankfulness and to be grateful, and we even set aside a day where we're going to eat far more than we should ever eat and uh, watch a little bit of TV and probably fall asleep on the couch all in the name of gratitude, right? And unfortunately, many of us, it's the one time out of the entire year where we'll go around the table and say, hey, tell me what you're thankful for, and we're thankful one day out of the year. That's a terrible way to live. But so many times our gratitude can get uh, hijacked, Our gratitude gets off track. We forget to be thankful. And uh, there's three really major enemies I've seen of gratitude in my own life and in the lives of others. And the first of those enemies is just entitlement. I believe that I deserve this. Uh, I need to get what's coming to me. I'm entitled to something. You know, I've known people before who, uh, hey, we get a a, 5% raise every January 1st, so I'm entitled to my raise come January and then, if they get a 2% raise or been out of shape because they got 5% last year and they're, uh, they're entitled to this. I, I got something coming to me and I need to get it. Or even the sense of entitlement that, you know, God owes me something. Hey, I, I'm faithful to God, so God needs to be faithful to me. I, I take care of God, God should take care of me and it's a sense of entitlement that always robs your gratitude. Uh, you need to understand that the only thing that you deserve is God's wrath and judgment and that anything you get from God is just automatically a gift. Second major enemy that I see is, of gratitude. If you're looking for a place in the notes where these are, I've, I've conditioned you to fill in blanks. There's no blanks for these. I'm just rattling them off uh, as, as we go. So, some people are like looking at the screen and looking back down at their notes and they're scratching their head and leaning over to their spouse. And I've conditioned you that there should always be a blank for everything. There's not always a blank for everything, and that's okay. Um, entitlement. Secondly, expectancy. Expectancy kills your gratitude hey, this is coming for me, and so I automatically, again, it's almost pairs together with entitlement, but a lot of times people get into a situation they have some expectation of how it's gonna be. Oh, pastor, I got a new job. It's better hours. It's better pay. Things are gonna be so much better. Pay and hours aren't the only two factors in a job. I've known people who have left high-paying jobs with great hours because it was a crummy working environment, they had an expectation that didn't get met, had the opportunity to go through premarital counseling with a couple yesterday, and uh, the whole part of premarital counseling is setting expectations. Marriage is hard. It's gonna be one of the most difficult things you've ever done in your entire life. There'll be times where you feel like giving up, but you gotta see it through because God is faithful, and it's the most rewarding thing you'll ever do in your entire life if you do it God's way but we're going into it with the right expectations because many people go into marriage thinking, oh, marriage is gonna fix all my problems. Marriage is gonna give me happy days for the rest of my life. Marriage will make every day better. And when they find out that that's not the case, they're disappointed and they can't be grateful for what they do have because they had an expectancy that didn't get met. Third major hijacker of your gratitude, selfishness. (laughs) I can't take time to be thankful for what other people are doing because of what's happening to me. It's all about me, what gets done for me, what gets done to me, how I'm treated, how I feel. I can't possibly think about anybody else. I can't be happy and praise God with you when you get promoted because I didn't get promoted. I can't say that you're blessed and be happy for you because you got a house because I, I, I don't have a house. And I can't be excited for you because you know your kids are doing well because my kids aren't doing well and this idea of selfishness totally robs our gratitude. But Paul, writing from prison, to a group of Christians that he hasn't seen in quite some time. Again, the time between the time he started the church and the time that he writes this letter, probably about 10 to 12 years, hasn't seen him face-to-face in a really long time, but he's overwhelmed with gratitude in his heart. He's not griping about his circumstances. He's not telling him how terrible the prison food is or how his freedom got taken away. No, he just has overwhelming gratitude. And as we jot down some thoughts this morning from this passage, I want you to think about these. First of all, a heart of gratitude and a heart of praise increase our joy. Again, when I have a heart of selfishness, selfishness will steal my joy. Uh, When I have a heart of unthankfulness, unthankfulness will steal my joy. Take a look at verse number three in our passage this morning. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time I think about you guys, I, I praise God for you. I thank God for you. As we think about things to praise for, things to be grateful for, we need to remember that this only increases our joy. Let me just tell you the next time you're going through a difficult spot and you're just having a down day and you're gonna have them, everybody gets them. Remember to praise. Just stop for a minute and say, man, God, things are terrible right now, but you've been faithful to me, you've been good to me. Uh, I have a hymnal in my office. I think everybody should own a hymnal uh, because it's a book full of songs that are written about Jesus and God and the faithfulness of God and God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness, God's love. And sometimes I'll just pull a hymnal off my shelf and just begin to thumb through it. If I know the tune, I'll sing along to it. If I don't, I'll just read the words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Whew, praise God for that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. And praise God for that. When I think through the faithfulness of God, it should bring about praise. We're talking about remembering the faithfulness of God. Again, as Paul sits in a prison cell not knowing what's going to happen, he remembers the faithfulness of God. He thinks back of times in his life where he thought he was going to be sunk. Uh, times in his life where he thought it was the end and he remembers God's faithfulness. Psalm 77, the psalmist says, And this, and I said, This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years. With the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of all thy doings. Uh, The psalmist says it this way. He says, I'm going to remember. He says, the years of your right hand. Anytime you see in the Bible the right hand, it's a hand of favor and a, a hand of blessing. It's a show of God's power. And the right hand is always a picture of God's blessing. He says, I'm gonna remember the years of your right hand, the years that you were faithful to me. I'm gonna remember that. And he says, I'm gonna remember your works. I'm gonna remember just the average, every day, ordinary times that I saw you provide. The times we sat down for a meal and there was food on the table. The time that I woke up and I was able to stand on my own two feet. The days that I was able to to just see another sunset I'm gonna remember those days, but I'm also gonna remember the wonders, the times where you came through in a major way, the time that I saw you do the impossible in my life. I'm gonna remember those times, God, because you've been faithful. And so you want to increase your joy, increase your praise, and your remembrance of the faithfulness of God. But also think about this passage of Scripture too when he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I want you to encourage you to remember how God has used other people in your life. And when I'm talking about how God's used other people, I'm talking about in a spiritual sense and the way that people have guided you towards Jesus and the way that people have invested in you spiritually, the way people have spoken God's truth into your life or encouraged you, or maybe even at times had hard times of correction in your life to bring you to a place of spiritual fruitfulness. Every single one of us is here today because someone in our life encouraged us to follow after Jesus. Somebody in our life invested in us. Somebody took time to take the word of God and put it in your heart. I'm thankful that I was raised in a home where my parents were really kind of first-generation Christians. They didn't really know what they were doing as far as... uh, really parenting goes, but even then trying to be Christian parents, they just knew this, if the church doors are open, me and my brother were gonna be there every single time without fail. I'm thankful for parents who didn't know a lot, but what they did know they were faithful to. And man, I can't tell you the impact that that made in my life. I'm thankful that when I, I joined the Navy and the, I finished up my uh, training in A school and the first command that I went to uh, had a chief that I worked for. His name was Dana Hudnell. Dana going later to become a warrant officer, and, and, but he uh, never forgot his Christian values. And guys in our workspace would be cussing in the next cubicle over. He'd be like, hey, guys, we don't talk like that in this workspace. Knock it off. And Dana was a Christian. He lived his... Christian values in the workplace. And that made an impact on me because here I was a young sailor and uh, I was kind of uh, straddling the sense as far as uh, living for the world or living for Jesus. And I didn't know which end and it seemed a lot easier to live for the world in an environment like that. But here's a guy who had been successful career-wise, who had the respect and esteem of his peers who decided to say, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed by that. God used him greatly in my life. I think of when Angel and I first got married that there was a couple uh, there were assistant pastors at the churches we were at, Pat and Jane Smith. There were older couple a little bit further down the road from us who just sat down with us and took us to dinner and told, told us about life, had us in their home, taught us about parenting, taught us about walking with Jesus and what it looked like. And I didn't know at the time the term for it, but it was discipleship. They were just teaching us what it meant to be a committed follower of Jesus. I praise God for them. I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it weren't for them. I think of my pastor in California and how he really took a, a, a kid at the time. I mean, I was in my mid-20s and didn't really know anything about serving Jesus with my life. I just had a lot of excitement and a lot of desire. And he took that and he shaped and he molded and he trained and he invested and, and who he call what it is today because of the investment of my pastor in my life. When we look back at our life and we remember the faithfulness of God, we need to remember those people that God put in our path. As Paul writes to the church at Philippi later in Philippians chapter four, He'll write to him and he'll say this, Philippians 4, 14, notwithstanding ye have done well that you did communicate with my affliction. In other words, I had a problem and you were there for me. Know ye Philippians also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed Macedonia and when I left Philippi, no church communicated with me regarding my needs except for you. Hey, when I left Philippi with you guys and went on to the next place, nobody was looking out for me except for you guys. I remember that. That made an impact on Paul's life. We would say that Paul was probably one of the most influential Christians who would ever live. He gave us a majority of the, the New Testament, 12 if not 13 books of the New Testament were penned by Paul's own hand. But Paul says, hey, guys, I remember what you did for me, and I never forgot it. Now, again, when he left Philippi, it was probably about 11 years earlier than when he actually wrote this letter. But he says, guys, I never forgot what you did for me. Maybe you had a friend who invited you to church where you heard the gospel and got saved. Maybe you have a family member who prayed and prayed and prayed for you that you would come back to Jesus and you did. Maybe you have somebody who sat down and poured their life into you through discipleship and invested in you. Don't forget that. Remember those people that have invested in you and that should develop in you a heart of gratitude and a heart of praise. But you know what the best thing that you can do with the investment that others have made in your life? Whether it's your parents, a family member, a friend, uh, a church a person in the church who had invested in your life, the best thing in the world that you can do with the investment that was given to you is this. Be faithful. Take what you got and run with it. Because you see, our testimony of faithfulness increases the joy of others. As Paul writes to this church at Philippi, he knows that they're doing really, really well. Now, when he writes to the church at Corinth, he knows that they're an absolute, utter wreck. Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. We only have two copies of those in Scripture. Basically, the second and fourth letters that he wrote are the only letters that we have of Paul. He wrote four different letters to them, and every single time he was saying, guys, please, get it together. Stop this nonsense. But as he writes to the church at Philippi, he's like, guys, you're killing it. You're doing really well. Now, again, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. There's a place in uh, chapter number four where there's a a couple of people in the church that are having problems. He's like, guys, please just get on the same page because it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. And he kind of moves on. And I can imagine Paul as he writes to them the emotion, the feeling, the joy that he has in his heart to be able to write this letter saying, guys, you're killing it. Keep up the good work. And when you are faithful, it encourages the people around you. I look at the folks that I've had the opportunity to disciple here at Huikala. Man, some of them are leading connect groups. Some of them are discipling others. All of them are sharing their faith with others, leading people to Christ, encouraging people to grow. Man, that helps me immensely. We say, well, all the people I've discipled haven't made it. I didn't say all the people I've discipled have made it either. We had a group of Folks, church members together one time, we were talking about discipleship and encouraging people. And I said, how many of you have been involved in our discipleship? And probably 75% of the people raise their hand. I said, now, of you that have discipled, raise your hand. And probably 50% of the people raise their hand. They've been discipling another Christian. And I said, if you've ever had somebody quit on you through the process of discipleship, raise your hand. Almost everybody raised their hand. And to the two people that didn't, I said, just hang on, your time's coming. <laughs> because it just happens. But the people that are faithful, oh, that's an encouragement. That's the good stuff. Here's the problem when we fail in our faithfulness to God. Not only is it a bad testimony, but first of all, our lack of faithfulness dishonors the name of the Lord. It dishonors the Lord. Never mind the fact that it causes other Christians to stumble. Never mind the fact that unsaved people look at you and try to figure out what went wrong. First of all, we need to think that when I fail, I fail the Lord first and foremost. As God writes to the children of Israel, and He speaks to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 48, he talks to them. He says, Guys, I really what I want to do, I, I want to wipe you off the face of the planet and start over because you're an absolute embarrassment to me. God speaks very, very harshly. And he says, I'm not as much upset with you for what you've done as the fact that you've polluted my name, is what he said. And he says, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna wipe you off the face of the planet, but not because of you. He says, I'm gonna save you because of my name's sake. I care about my name way too much for people to say, whew. God's people, who don't want to be one of God's people. He just like wiped them off the planet and started over. Don't want to be God's people. No, got just because of my name, I'm not going to do that. But you've embarrassed me and you've polluted my name because of the way that you're living. And unfortunately, there are Christians today who do not deserve the title Christian because the way that they're living actually brings shame and dishonor to the name of Christian. And again, I don't get the, the opportunity to say who gets to where the, the, the name and who doesn't. But the name Christian literally means a small version of Christ. That's why when Paul says, uh, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ, a Christian means a small version of Christ. The Bible says that we're ambassadors for Christ and that God has sent us in Christ's stead. In other words, instead of sending Jesus, God sent us instead. So the name Christian should mean something to us. And when we fail to live up to God's expectations and we decide we want to quit on what God has for us, we dishonor the Lord and we dishonor the name of Christian. Unfortunately, many Christians don't have a problem with that because maybe they just see God as a ticket to heaven. Maybe they say God, see God as a way to get their prayers answered or a way to uh, get over this uh cancer that they got maybe they just see god as a means to an end and they don't really care about dishonoring the lord <laughs> i'm going to share some statistics with you next week about a, a christian research group that just came out this past week and they asked professing believers what they felt thought about their own sin and one of the questions they asked was do you abstain from sin because you know that it hurts the heart of god and something like 50 percent of cr- christians said no They had such a low view of the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and very little regard for their own personal sin. Friend, let me help you with something. God loves you more than anything in the world, but God hates sin with every fiber of his being. That Sin is the opposite of who God is. God is holy, holy, holy. and The word holy means separate from sin, and God hates sin. The problem is you and I are sinners. And when you and I were born into this world, we were not born into the family of God. We were born on the opposing forces against God. The Bible says in Romans 5, we were the enemies of God. Nobody's born into the family of God automatically. We've sinned against God, we've gone our own way. The Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's law, not once or twice. It's not that one thing that we did in college that we're not proud of. It's something that we do on a regular, continual basis because we just want what we want. And that causes problems because sin repels God. And so because of your sin and because of my sin, when we die, we'll have to pay for our sin. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, it's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. When you die, you'll stand face to face before a holy God. There will be no scale in heaven to weigh out your good works versus your bad. St. Peter's not gonna be there giving you a 10-point questionnaire asking you why you should get in. The Bible says that God will stand before you and he will have a book And inside of it are written, those who have trusted Christ as Savior, it's called the book of life. If your name is in the book, you go to heaven. If your name's not in the book, you go to hell. There is no court of appeals. There is no second chances. There is no uh, delay. The judgment is swift. It's just, and it's done. And God's already told us what the consequences of our sin is. The wages of sin is death. When you die, you're going to hell because you gotta pay for your sins, simple as that. That's what we deserve, it's what I deserve. But God loves you. He loves you too much to allow you to go to to hell. He loves you too much to allow you not to have another option. The Bible says that God loves you so much that he continually demonstrates his love towards you in the fact that you were supposed to die, but Jesus died in your place. You were supposed to pay for your sin, but Jesus paid already for you. That's how much he loves you. And that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. He never sinned one time. That's why Jesus doesn't owe God anything the way that you and I owe God anything, because Jesus was perfect, he was without sin. He was God in the flesh, and God came to be a man to die for your sins and mine, that's it. The Bible says that Jesus, one purpose and one purpose only, He didn't come to give us pithy platitudes. He didn't come to give us self-help books. He didn't come to give us a book full of quotes. He didn't come to to fill up the little tear-off calendar that you have every single day that you tear off uh, on your desk. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. You were lost in your sin. I am lost in my sin, and Jesus came to save us from that. But this is the most important thing you'll ever hear in your entire life. You have to make a decision for yourself what you do with that. God is offering pay for your sin, to forgive you of all the wrong that you've ever done. He's willing to take Jesus' payment and apply it to your account today to settle you up once and for all. But you have to do two things. You have to believe that Jesus Christ can do that. You have to believe that he did die for your sin. And you have to be willing to turn away from your sin. I cannot continue in my sin while asking to be saved from my sin. If I'm drowning and someone throws me a lifeline, I can't say, I'm gonna hang on to this lifeline while I continue to hang out in the water for a little bit longer. No, no, no. The whole point of being saved from my sin is that God would take me from that. Now, sometimes people get a little bit mixed up and they think, well, uh, pastor, I'm gonna sin again. Of course you are but it's a conscious decision that I don't want to live there any longer, I want to follow after Jesus. Jesus is not just a prayer that you pray so you get your ticket punched to heaven and you're good. Jesus loves you, but Jesus also died for you so that you can be set free from your sin. Now, once you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, again I said that settles up your account with God forever, Based on scripture, I can tell you with all authority that once you accept Christ as Savior, nobody can ever take that away from you. You say, well, what happens when I sin? You're a disobedient child of God who needs to make things right with his father. But you're no longer an enemy of God fighting against God. You're his child. And friend, that's the only way to make things right with God. It's the only way to make it to heaven. Jesus says in John chapter three, verse number three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Has there been a time in your life where you've been born again, where you've been saved? If not, your, your sin is 100% on you and I can tell you how it's all gonna end and it's not good. Has there been a time in your life where you've been saved? That's the same thing as being born again. My faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repentance of sin, knowing for sure that everything's settled up between me and God once and for all. And then now I get to live a forgiven life. Not perfect, but forgiven. There's never been a time like that for you Everything else we're gonna talk about here is really just kind of the icing on the cake, but you have no cake. Jesus is everything. Faith in him is everything. That's the foundation that we build everything on. If you don't have that, we're just talking about behavior modification today, which doesn't work. But when you know that Jesus Christ is your savior, when you know that your sins are forgiven, you know that all the wrong you've ever done in your entire life is completely and totally over like it never happened, that creates inside of you a sense of joy, a sense of hope. I know that when I die on this earth, whether it's next week or 30, 40, 50 years from now, I know for sure that I will be with Jesus Christ in heaven. That gives me great peace. That gives me great hope. And I've got everything that I need to make it through this week because I know who Jesus is and I know what God's word says. Do you know for sure that you're saved? If not, you're missing out on the joy and peace that comes from knowing Jesus. The problem is many people want their ticket punched to heaven. Yeah, I'll pray that prayer. No, no, no. Jesus is not praying a prayer. Being born again is not just saying some magical words like we have a spell book that we open up and if you pray this prayer, it just automatically whisks everything away. No, it's a decision that you make to follow after Jesus. And many people want to get their ticket punched to heaven, call themselves a Christian, but continue to live in their sin. And when you do that, that dishonors the Lord. Many times people want to come to church and they want to be invested in, they want to learn, they want to grow, and then they get six months in and realize, this isn't really what I was looking for. And they bail. And when you do that, you dishonor the Lord. Next, our lack of faithfulness is harmful to other Christians. We need to think, first of all, of how this affects the Lord But secondly, we need to think about how this affects other Christians. You decide to quit on Jesus, that has an effect on the people around you. Every single person is connected to someone else, everyone. And you might be the loner of loners, the introvert of all introverts. You're connected to somebody, I guarantee it. And when you quit, it hurts. Paul, as he writes to the uh, churches at Galatia, Again, he was upset when he wrote. No word of commendation, no, hey, guys, keep it up. You're doing a good work there, but I wanna encourage you in these others, no. Verse number six, he gets through the the, uh, introduction phase, and he says this in Galatians chapter one, verse number six. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you, and you pervert the gospel of Christ. (laughs) Guys, I am so disappointed in you that you would leave the real gospel, That's embarrassing, and it's hurtful. That's what Paul says from the very get-go. Paul, as he writes to Timothy, says, there's a man by the name of Alexander the coppersmith. He did me much evil, but God's gonna take care of him, Timothy. Don't worry about that. But I just wanted to let you know, beware of him, because if you see him, he doesn't really wanna hear what God has to say. Be careful, Timothy. Paul had another man that traveled with him that was in prison with him for a time as well by the name of Demas. And he says, Demuth has forsaken me. He left me because he loved this world way too much. Imagine how hurtful that was for Paul. Remember when Angela and I went, uh, we first moved to Lancaster, California to attend uh, Bible college there. We, our very first Sunday, we showed up early because we didn't really know where we were going. We were walking across the parking lot and um, one of the assistant pastor's wives came out and she said, hey, you guys look like you're trying to find out where you're going. Why don't you come to our Sunday school class? It's the young couples class. And we were, and we were mid-20s at the time. We thought young couples class would be a good place for us. We get there and most of the folks are like late 20s, early 30s. It's like this isn't really like young couples and come to find out these started off as the young couples class, but people age and they got a little bit older. And so uh, we were in this group of probably, I don't know, probably about 15 or so couples and we were tight. I mean, we were tight. We were there every week. We were praying for each other throughout the week. A lot of our kids went to the same school together. And we'd see, our, our, see each other at like our kids' basketball games and stuff like that. We were tight somebody would have a cookout over at their house and invite people over. We'd have revival services. We'd have prayer over at somebody's house. You'd pack, you know, 30 people and all their kids into to one house. We're all praying together. I mean, we were tight. We were close. Fast forward, I don't know, 15, almost 20 years from that time, out of those 15 couples, there's about seven of us that are still married. Out of those seven that are still married, I think there's probably five of us couples that are still in church. All the others fell apart. They quit. They quit on the marriage. They quit on Jesus. They quit on the kids. They just quit. It's hard to watch that. It's hurtful to see that, bro. I remember kneeling by your your couch, praying for your kids to grow up and love Jesus. You don't even talk to your kids now. That hurts. <laughs> I remember we started. Who we call it? I had. A, a great idea. I'm full of great ideas. If you ever want some ideas, ask me. I'm like the idea guy, right? Always full of great ideas. I mentioned this at our, our, our men's conference, but I made the idea that, that, that whenever we start Who We Call, it, we're going to create a, a yearly pictorial directory. Like back in the day when I was a kid, Olin Mills Photography would come to churches and set up a little studio in the center. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. Set up a little studio in one of the Sunday school classrooms, and every family in the church could come get their picture made for free. And so you come, you get your picture made, and uh, they would give you like one four by six or something like that. But if you'd like to upgrade to a package and get an eight by ten, and of course that was like the one family photo of the year, the eight by ten. you go to people's houses, they have their eight by ten on the wall from every year from Olin Mills, the church photos. And then at the end of everybody getting their, in the church, getting their picture taken, they would give everybody in the church a pictorial directory, and so you could like open it up, like oh here's this family and there's all their kids and every now and then you go to somebody's house, they have one from a couple years ago, like oh look how little their kids were. And I thought, man, that'd be great. We're bringing back the pictorial directory. Like, that's gonna be awesome, right? when somebody comes to our church, they'd be like, hey, here's a list of everybody in our church and what they look like and the names of their kids and how old they are. And it's just like, it's an easy way to get to know everybody in our church. We're doing a pictorial directory. This is gonna be awesome. And so, like, our very first year at Huykala, we we started this from scratch in October 2013. And, uh, you know, we saw some growth early on. And... Um, there were two families, or actually three families that before we ever even opened the doors to who we call it were here, and they were working and getting the building ready for our first Sunday, and they were going on outreach on the weekends and stuff like that, and then probably by week three, one of those families came to us and said, Pastor, we just don't really feel like this is the church for us, and I'm kind of really disappointed in you and the church and the way things are, and so we're going to split. It's like, wow, that's encouraging. Uh, what a blessing, uh, and so, okay, uh, we'll we'll keep on trucking, and we did. And then over the course of probably, I don't know, the next 12 months or so, God brought probably, I don't know, 250, 300 people to who we call it. It was awesome. We saw people saved and baptized and discipled and growing in their faith and stuff like that. But after about a year or so of having 300 people, we only had probably, I don't know, 45 or so people at our church. That means 250 people left? Yeah, it did. And then I thought to myself, do I really want to have a pictorial directory of all the people that left? Like really, like, Oh, yeah, this is Bob and his family. They came for about six weeks, and then they left and said terrible stuff about us on Facebook. I remember that. That was nice of them, the six weeks they were here. Oh, yeah, here's Joe. He ended up, you know, getting saved, but he ended up going back to drug addiction and quit on Jesus. Oh, here's this family over here. I remember, yeah, they were the ones that were spreading gossip and hateful things about us uh, in our church and had to leave. Um, Yeah, that's do I really want a pictorial directory of all the people who hate my guts? I don't think so. And so I just said, that's a bad, bad, bad idea. Don't do it. Um, I grew up in a church as a kid. The idea of the pictorial directory, nobody ever came to our church and nobody ever left unless they died. And so it's just like the same people every year. Uh, I actually think it would be a terrible thing to have for those reasons. Uh, but anyways, uh, I digress. But I say, we've never had a pictorial directory, but we have seven years almost of pictures. And I was looking through some photos a few weeks ago. And there was a guy who was a member of our church and he was just standing out on the the sidewalk with the the yellow vest on with a big sign that says church parking, and his little kids were there with him, they were throwing shakas, and it just broke my heart, because he quit on his family, he quit on the Lord, he's out of church, he doesn't see his kids, his wife left him for another man, and she's living with him, and they're not married. Her parents passed away, both of them, within a couple of months of each other. They were attending our church at the same time too. And her parents, before they passed away, sent me an email that I still have to this day that says, please pray for my children. They're so far away from God and all we want is them to come back to Jesus. Bro, I read stuff like that and it just cuts. It hurts. And Paul had those in his life, but here's what I want you to get from all of this. First of all, don't be that person. Don't do it. Second of all, don't focus on those people. We don't find a single letter where Paul wrote a letter to all the people that hated his guts, ever. We don't see where Paul spent a lot of time just droning on and on about the people who had quit or given up or weren't faithful or anything like that. He just kind of said, hey, God's gonna take care of that. I'm just moving on. But I challenge you, don't be that person. If I look you up 20 years from now, I wanna see you still faithfully following Jesus. And if you're married, I still want to see you married to your spouse, loving your kids, serving Jesus somewhere. Where will you be in 20 years? I don't know. I don't know where I'll be in 20 years. I got some ideas. I think about where I would be when I'm 63 years old. You know, I got some ideas what I'd like to do. I don't know if that'll come to fruition or not. I don't know what life will bring in the next 20 years. But here's what I can say with 100% certainty because I've drawn a line in the sand. I'm gonna be faithful to Jesus, count me in. I don't care what happens, I'm gonna be faithful. I have made that commitment. I've shared that commitment with others. And I've even gone so far as to say this to men in my life that I love and respect. If you see me begin to walk off the path, would you come grab me by the back of my neck and bring me back to the path? You know why? Because I can't, afford, I can't afford to not walk with Jesus. You know why? Because it hurts not only me, it not only hurts the heart of the Lord, but it hurts every single Christian that I've ever said, follow after Jesus, he's enough. I have to do it. You have to do it. Because when you don't, it hurts the name of Christ and it hurts all of the Christians around you. When you think about gratitude, for those that God's placed in our life, we should understand that our thankfulness should be linked to our prayerfulness. <laughs> Paul, he writes in verse number four, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. Paul doesn't just say, hey, thanks guys, I appreciate that. Paul doesn't just say, hey, I remember when I left the church, you guys continued to take care of me financially, make sure that my needs were met. He didn't just say, hey guys, thanks for that, appreciate that. No, he says, guys, I pray for you. Every time I think about you, I'm overwhelmed with joy. And every time I think about you, I pray for you. Every time. If you read through Paul's other writings, his writes to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse number 2, we give thanks to God for you always making mention of you in our prayers. His gratitude was always linked to his prayerfulness you know the best thing that you can do for somebody that you love and care for? Pray for them. Hey, look, I am more encouraged, more encouraged when someone sends me a text message that says, Pastor, I prayed for you this morning. That encourages me more than getting, a uh, you know, $25 Chili's gift card. And I love chips and salsa. Please don't get me wrong. But I'm far more encouraged by somebody saying, I took time to bring your name before the Lord today. I'm asking God to bless your life. Dude, that's everything. Had a friend this past week who said, Pastor, I wanna pray for you every day. Uh, when you prepare for your message, what's a good day to pray for you and your message preparation? I'll put it on my calendar. That encouraged me. That helped me. That makes me wanna keep going because I know that there's people behind me that are counting on me. So when we think about people and we're thankful, don't just be thankful. Pray for them. First of all, we pray for the needs of others. I hope you've got a prayer list that you keep. Maybe in the back of your Bible, maybe on your device. I use a program called Evernote that keeps my uh, prayer list synced between my my mobile device, my tablets, and my computer. Sometimes I'll print it off and go go analog and scratch off with a pen. But have some type of list that you use. Otherwise, it's just we forget stuff. When somebody says something like, oh, you know, my... uh, Mom's having surgery on a certain date or, hey, I got this court date on this case, uh, case on this date. I always stop, put it in the calendar on my phone, set a reminder, and that day say, hey, I know you got this coming up, I'm praying for you. Hey, I know you got the job interview today, let me know how it goes, I'm praying for that. Just letting you know that I'm thinking about you and I care about you. And when Paul says here in verse number uh, four, if you take a look, Always in every prayer of mine for you, making requests with joy. That word making requests, that phrase making requests means I'm asking God to do stuff for you. I'm not just saying, hey, thanks for Bob. Hey, thanks for John. Hey, thanks for Joe. I'm saying, hey, I know Joe's got this thing going on in his life. Would you bless him? Would you take care of him? Now, Paul, in this case here, again, mind you, he's probably a decade removed from actually pastoring this church. So he might not have everyday knowledge that one normally would have. Now, somebody's keeping him up to date because he knows if uh, two people in the church that aren't getting along, he encourages them to get their act together. But he doesn't know them as closely as he used to, but it does not stop him from praying for them. Because at the end of the day, all of us need the same thing. Sometimes I ask people, hey, how can I pray for it? And they go, oh, I don't know. Okay, here's what I going to pray. I going to pray that God will keep you close to him, that God will bless your life, that God will give you the grace day by day that you need to make it through this thing called life and to do it with joy. I think anybody would take a prayer like that, right? I don't know specifically, you know, that you have this thing happening on Wednesday at 10 o'clock in the morning, but I know you could use God's blessing and God's grace in your life. I know you could use some wisdom day to day on how to be the man or woman of God that God's called to be that much I do know. And so... We talk about praying for other people. It's not just saying their name. It's about actually praying specific things for them. When he said, I'm making requests for you. I'm praying specifically for you that God would bless you. Also, we think of praying for others continually. This is not just kind of a one-time thing that I do. For me, I have my prayer list really broken up into three different categories. I have prayer needs for me and my immediate family. I have the prayer needs for our church family. And then prayer needs that of other Christian friends that I know of or people that I want to, to see saved. And kind of how I split it up. I pray through some of those on different days and I pray through some of them on every single day. And if you've ever attended Hui College, you've ever filled out one of those cards that everybody hates to fill out cards, but I'm glad you did. That puts you on my prayer list. And I pray for you. And it's not something I do just do once and I'm done with it. But I continue to pray. And so... I want you to remember the people in your life that have impacted you, pray for them. And here's the awesome thing, let them know. Let them know you prayed for them. Hey, I was thinking about you today and I prayed for you. Being a pastor, you hear people with all kinds of opinions and thoughts and theological understandings of the Bible and um, you know, extra biblical extrapolations that people do on things that just aren't even in scripture. And strangely enough, I've come to meet people probably only a half dozen or so over the last, you know, seven or eight years, of people who believe that it's wrong to tell other people that you pray for. And the premise is, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your closet. You don't pray in public so that it, people will be impressed by you and how long you pray or what words you use, but go into a closet and pray, and your father sees you in secret, will reward you openly. So your, your prayer life should be a secret. You shouldn't tell anybody what you pray about. And they would even go so far as to say that it's sinful and prideful to say to someone else that I prayed for you. Now, again, if all we had was that passage of Scripture, I might agree with you, but the, the rest of those people, I would say, have you ever read Paul? Every single one of his epistles opens with, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking of you. When I think of you, it brings joy to my heart, and I pray for you. A lot of his epistles, when he closes out, they hey, just wanna let you know that he, here these are the guys who are with me. I'm praying for God's grace upon your life. Paul told people that he prayed for them because he knew that they needed prayer, and he knew it would be an encouragement to them. And so pray for others. So many times when we get stuck in a rut of prayer, it's just all about me. Hey, God, fix this problem at work that I got. Hey, God, I take care of this situation. Hey, God, finances are tight right now if you could like bless me. And uh, God, if you could just provide for me. And God, my health is, hasn't been what it should be. Could you help me with that? And workplace drama this, workplace drama that. And then prayer becomes self-centered. It's all focused. Let me just help you with something. Prayer will become very, very, very unfulfilling when it's all about you. (laughs) And then God doesn't really become our father that we wanna have a relationship with. He's like Santa Claus where we just kind of give him a list and say, here, God, do this. We make God a to-do list and tell him to do it. That's not a relationship. That's not fulfilling. That's not fun for anybody. But When we come before God and we say, God, I just want to spend time worshiping you for who you are. God, I want to take time just thanking you for everything that you've done. God, I want to confess my brokenness and my need for you. God, I want to confess my sin before you. God, I'm in great need of peace right now. But God, I know my brother, Sam, he's going through a rough spot right now. God, would you take care of him? Would you show him peace and strength and kindness and grace during this time? Got Sally, that I work with, she doesn't know Jesus, and she's going through a rough spot. Would you give me opportunity to share Jesus with her? Man, prayer takes on a totally different avenue. Now I'm talking with God. I'm sharing with God. I'm praising God. I'm thanking God. I'm asking God for, to do things for other people. And then it, at the end of it, it's just like, oh, yeah, I got, I got a couple of things that I need. But in the, the big scope of things, it's really small. And prayer becomes very fulfilling when it's not me focused. Paul's he writes to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter one, verse number three, we give thanks to God our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Ephesians 1 16, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So pray for other people and let them know it's an encouragement. As he goes on in this, verse number three, I thank my God on every remembrance of you, verse four, always in every prayer of mine for making requests. Request with joy, verse number five, for your fellowship in the gospel from this first day until now. You see, our commitment to the gospel is really what draws us together. How do you take a ragtag group of folks like the people in this room here today who come from so many different life experiences, who come from so many different walks of life, who come from so many different cultural backgrounds, how do you get us together as one cohesive team moving together? Well, first of all, we're all part of the family of God. Secondly, we're all part of the body of Christ. And third of all, we're all about the mission of the gospel. And for those of you looking in the notes for those three blanks, they aren't there, sorry. Um, see people looking at the screen, looking back down at their notes, wasn't there. But how do we gather together as a team? We're part of the family of God, we're part of the body of Christ, and we all have the same mission. That's why people who come to our church where English is their second language. That's okay, it doesn't bother me. It's not a prerequisite that you speak great English to be a part of our team. You just have to be a part of the family of God, be committed to the body of Christ, and be all about the gospel, that's what we are. I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for two weeks or 20 years. We can all be together. And Paul, as he writes to them, he's like, guys, I remember from day one we were part of this fellowship of the gospel together. Paul, as he goes through the city of Philippi, doesn't really know anybody, meets a woman by the name of Lydia, leads her to Christ. Finds this girl as he's walking through the market who's following after them and just continue to pick at him. And Paul realizes that she's demon-possessed and he casts the demon out of her and her... uh, owners are very upset about that cuz he took away their way of making money and they had Paul and Silas thrown in jail. Hmm. Paul, in typical Paul fashion, finds himself in jail for doing the work of God. So what does he do? Does he stage a prison riot? No. Does he rage against the machine? No. Does he fight the man? No. What does he do? Him and Silas just start singing, praising God at night. Is it And so they began to praise God in the middle of prison because they were doing God's work. And the Bible says that the jail cell's doors flew open. The jailer who's standing watch that night wakes up and sees that the doors to the jail are open and knows death is coming for him. That was punishable by death, prison break on your watch and he was asleep. As he goes to take his own life and Paul goes, oh, hold up, hold up, We're, we're still here, we're good. Nobody's left. Paul preaches Jesus to him and the Philippian jailer gets saved. I don't know if at the end of his watch or after Paul and Silas got out of jail, but the Bible says that the Philippian jailer's whole household ended up getting saved as a result of it. What good times Paul had in Philippi. But you know what all those experiences were based around? Every single one of them, the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sinners. Join our merry band. That's it. That's what it's all about for him. So, Again, for us, where does our strength come in? Our strength comes in our diversity, yes, absolutely. I'm thankful that you have life experiences that I don't. I'm thankful that somebody who's been saved for less than 30 days has a fresh set of eyes that I don't have anymore because I got saved when I was nine years old. I'm thankful that somebody who comes from a a different cultural background from me can explain to me how Christianity was lived out in the culture that they grew up in. I'm thankful for everybody who has something to bring to the table, but at the end, it's all about Jesus, we're all on the same team, all going the same direction. I love in verse number 27. I can't wait to get to verse 27. Paul says that we stand together with one mind, one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Oh, man, chapter one's all about that gospel life. Paul, as he writes to the church at Rome, in Romans chapter one, verse number nine, he says this, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul says God is my witness. I'm all about living out the gospel. When I think about the gospel, I think about you, church at Rome. And you know what the cool thing about this is? This is awesome. Paul had never been to the church at Rome before, ever. He'd only heard about them and heard what God had done through them and how they were being greatly used of God. And he writes a letter to them going, guys, I love the gospel and I know that you do too and that causes me to wanna pray for you. And so here's the funny thing. Our partners in the gospel aren't just the people that are part of this local body of believers. It's believers worldwide. If you work with other Christians who attend a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, there are partners together in the gospel. Hey, you might work with other Christians who maybe right now are undercover Christians that are waiting for you to, to come out so that they can come out too. I don't know. Many guys in our church said before they've been a part of of workplaces where they led a a men's Bible study at their workplace. Man, that is awesome. Do it. I know some people who say, hey, we gather all the Christians together before we clock in and we spend some time in prayer, maybe only for 30 seconds or so. Man, do it. These are our partners together in the gospel. For us as a church, we uh, partner together with missionaries around the world. We've helped in the starting of probably 10 different churches in the United States. Uh, church planners and help them to get started. In addition to that, we partnered together right now with uh, Youth for Christ, their organization which helps get public uh, school Bible clubs started for kids to be able to hear the gospel in a public school. Man, I'm for that. Those are partners in the gospel. We currently support a a husband and wife team that are in uh, Papua New Guinea uh, who are going from village to village and using uh, medicine and giving kids shots and uh, binding up wounds and giving... Ladies, antibiotics, and uh, doing ultrasounds on ladies and delivering babies. Why? For the gospel. I want to jump in with that. These are our partners in the gospel. And you're giving envelope every week, there's a section called missions. If you give online, there's a button you can check called missions. Every single dollar that's given to missions goes directly in the hands of a missionary who's getting the gospel work done. These are our partners in the gospel. But you know where our number one partnership lies with the people in this room? This is our primary partnership in the gospel. Our mission, go when baptized. The Great Commission is what it is. We ordered some uh, invitation cards. Um, we ordered them like three weeks ago, and they're supposed to be here tomorrow. Uh, the joys of living in Hawaii, right? That next day shipping doesn't mean next day shipping. Uh, and so these invitation cards are very, very simple. Uh, on the front of the card, it says Hui Kala Baptist Church. It has three icons on the front. First icon is a mask. Second icon is hand sanitizer. Third icon is the social distancing icon. No words, just icons. You know what it means by this point, right? You flip it over, it's our new service schedule that we have, telling people, you know, when we have classes and that we have all of our Wednesday night, uh, small groups are online right now and visit our church website and stuff like that. And you know the bulk of the card on the back? You know what's on the back of the bulk of the card? The gospel. Okay, we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic. Do we stop with the gospel? No, we continue to go with the gospel. Oh, well, people might not visit church during this time. That's fine. Our goal is not to get people to come to church. Our goal is to see people trust in Christ as Savior. That's our goal. And so we're, we're continuing to live out the gospel here amongst God's people. Some final thoughts on this passage this morning when we're done. First of all, do not quit. People are counting on you. <laughs> I often tell people that are new to their faith, stick with it because people are watching, especially if you're new. You know why? Because everybody remembers that one time that you were gonna be a vegan for the rest of your life. Everybody remembers that. They didn't forget. And you got like two weeks into it and you went over to somebody's house and they had bacon and you realize you could never really be a, a vegan because you love bacon too much, right? So everybody remembers that time that you were gonna be a vegan for the rest of your life. Everybody remembers when you went through that rebellious phase, whether you, you know, started putting safety pins on your denim jacket or started listening to hard rock music. You went through that phase in your life here. This Christianity thing, this is just a phase that they're going through and it's going to pass, you know. Just like they were super into you know, TV show friends once upon a time. Now they're not into that anymore. This church thing is just a phase they're going through. It's going to be over in a minute. No, no, no. That's where you're wrong. This isn't a phase I'm going through. This is my life now. Christianity isn't just something that I do on the weekends, it's everything to me. It affects the way that I love my wife, it affects the way that I parent my children, it affects the friends that I hang out with, it affects the entertainment that I watch, it affects every single area of my life. And the things that I used to do, I don't do those anymore because I'm a Christian now. Hmm. Yeah, we'll see how that lasts. Good, watch, because I'm gonna show you, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. I cannot quit. Way too many people are counting on me. And I say that especially to new Christians because they're the most susceptible. When difficult times come, they, they sometimes want to hit the eject button instead of tightening down the straps a little bit harder and sucking it up and getting through it. Sometimes younger Christians want to bail. But I say this also to, to older Christians. Look, if you've been walking with Jesus for any period of time, people have been influenced by you and they're waiting to see how things shake out. Be faithful. Next, pray for those who God's used in your life. Every single one of us has had somebody who's been faithful, who God's used in our lives. We had lunch with some friends last weekend and they were telling me, hey pastor, This person discipled me, and man, it changed my life the way that they loved me and encouraged me and helped me and counseled me and just gave me good godly advice and kept me on track. Man, that that helped me to hear that. Continue to pray for those people and let them know that you're thinking of them and you appreciate their investment in your life. As I was studying for this passage, I I made a list of about a dozen people in my life that God had used greatly in my life. I want to reach out to them this week and just tell them how much I appreciate that. I've already prayed for them, and I want to reach out to them and let them know that. Our family went and had dinner together last night and we went around the table and said, hey, who's somebody who's had a, a major impact in your life in a positive way for your faith? And I was thankful as we went around the room, a couple of my kids mentioned men or women in this church that had impacted their life. And they looked at it and said, man, that person helped me in my faith. And that, that encouraged me that you people are having an impact on my family. That encourages me. Next, show gratitude to those that God's used in your life. Again, I'm not saying you gotta send them a gift card to a restaurant, a text message. I thought of you and I prayed for you today and I'm thankful for the way God used you in my life. I wouldn't be where I am today were it not for your investment. I know that God gets the glory for it, but he used you in a serious way to do that. Again, that's what Paul did. Paul reached out and said, guys, God used you in such a powerful way in my life. Can you imagine, again, we would say probably one of the most influential Christians of all times, Apostle Paul, is reaching out and saying, thanks for encouraging me, guys. What? The churches at that time didn't have all the writings of Paul, but you and I have it. Can you imagine Paul saying, hey, thanks for encouraging me? No, Paul, God used you in your writings to encourage me. When times when I felt like I was without strength, I remember what you said. At times, I thought everything was gonna fall apart. I remember what you said. But Paul writes and says, hey, guys, thanks for encouraging me. This just goes to show you that everyone can use encouragement, everybody. Everybody can use prayer. Everybody can use, hey, I'm thinking of you. And sometimes you think, well, that person's got it all together. You have no idea. Everybody's going through something, everybody. Every single person. So reach out, be kind, be an encourager. Use your words to build people up. Final thought: latch on to others that are about the gospel life. I need to find people in my life that are going the same direction I am. I need to latch on tight. We had our men's conference last week, and we split our guys up into four different nights that we uh, that we met and four different small groups. We're continuing those small groups on Saturday mornings at eight o'clock in the morning. And we basically, we're gonna meet once every four weeks with every group. And so guys, if you didn't attend the conference, you didn't get put in a group, let me know that. I'll put you in a group. Yesterday, we had about 10 guys who showed up here. We went around in a circle and talked about how we wanna be better men. We prayed together. And one of our men, not me, shared a challenge from the Bible on how we can be better men. And I was helped by that. I was encouraged by that. Here's the idea. All of us need more Christian friends in our life. All of us. And the people that are really living it, I want to learn from them. But here's where everything takes a a turn. If you've been saved for any length of time, it's now your time to be that person in someone else's life be that person who says, ooh, hey, I see what you did there, and I would just encourage you, based on what the Bible says, to not do that again. Now's your time to do that. Now's your time to say, hey, let's grab lunch sometime. I'd like to figure out how I can pray for you better and help you to grow in your faith. I don't know everything that there is to know about the Bible, but I know some. I had this guy named Pat that invested in my life, and he was a huge encourager to me, and I'd kind of take some things that Pat taught me and share them with you. Man, that would be Awesome. Now you get to be the one that pours into other people. Paul didn't just take from the church at Philippi, he gave. And as he gave, they gave back, and it was their reciprocal relationship. Now we get to have that with other Christians. But again, you know what the enemies of those are? Entitlement, expectation, and selfishness. It's gonna kill all this. But if we have hearts of praise, gratitude, it increases our joy. It helps us to spread that joy with others. Most important thing in the world if you're here today and you do not know for sure when you die today, heaven is your home. If you died this second, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? If not, make sure today. You don't have to attend a class. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to join our church. You don't have to become a Baptist. There's not 14 steps you gotta go through. You just have to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he died for my sins. I believe that he has the power to save me and I cannot do it on my own and I'm willing to confess that my sin is wrong before God. I wanna seek forgiveness. If you'll do that today, the Bible says, all of your sin can be forgiven like it never even happened, and you have a fresh start with Jesus, and you'll have joy like you've never, ever experienced before. For those of us that are saved, man, let's spread that joy this week. How do we do that? Words of encouragement to people who have had an impact in our life. Think about that. And then take it one step further. Be that person